Just before you listen to this episode of Hollywood Sources, let me tell you that you can come and join us live for a special recording on the 21st of March as we mark 25 years of devolution. Already confirmed, Alex Salmond, Jack McConnell, Henry McLeish, all former First Ministers of Scotland, of course. You can hear them in conversation, ask them your questions, make your points as well. Come along and see us. Get your tickets at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. Hello, hello. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's The Resident we head to and it's The Resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. And welcome to Hollywood Sources. We're recording on Wednesday, the 24th of May. I'm Callum McDonald. Also here, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond when he was First Minister. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. A very sunny Aberdeen, actually. Well, there we are. Today. That makes After a change. you <laughs> criticised my great part of the country last week. <laughs> uh, also here, Andy McKeever, former Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Good morning. Right, okay. We would just like to take a minute (laughs) to address a scandal of quite spectacular proportions. There are no excuses other than the ones I'm about to give. Uh, Last week on the podcast, uh, you may have heard someone uh, typing quite profusely in the background. Uh, Having reviewed the tapes and independently audited the tapes, I can confirm that that was... Mostly me, actually. Um, so I'm sorry. Mostly? <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Mostly you? Sorry. Uh, let's just be clear, right? Uh, and, 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 and hats off to you. Andy and I are meant to be the political advisors. You put out that statement on Twitter, uh, you know, all very jovial, talking about uh, an independent investigation, clearly aimed at deflecting attention from yourself. It wasn't... For the benefit of the listeners at home, it was not... It was not mostly Callum, it was exclusively Callum. <laughs> and the lack of professionalism, quite frankly, from such a, a preeminent journalist like yourself, <laughs> right. is very, very disappointing. And there's I'm been not anger. Angry. I mean, there has, been, there has been scandal and anger. I've had lots of MSPs and various other 
uh, political folk getting in touch and saying how annoying. I even had a cabinet minister, a Scottish government cabinet minister, saying, what was that typing on your... Po- I think the king might be involved at some point <laughs> reasonably soon in this. Well, what I would like to say is I was, first of all, um, I, why I was typing, I mean, I was, <clears throat> I was, um, I was ordering myself a new camper van um, with the... <laughs> with the <laughs> With the minimal funds that <laughs> so far the podcast has raised, uh, right. that is one thing I was doing. Uh, the next thing, yeah, you know, I was typing up some some hot scoops. Jeff mentions my you know notoriety in the sphere of journalism. Um, that was something else I had just had to do, um, and in no way at all was I WhatsApping Jeff and Andy um, throughout the podcast. That was n- that was not what was happening at all. Yeah. Uh, and you were, I think you were also typing at the time, as Adam Tompkins was speaking on last week's podcast, I think you were yeah. typing that Adam Tompkins, who was a Tory MSP until 18 months ago, uh, was saying that Labour should win the general election <laughs> with a small majority and that would be the best outcome. That was the latest in a series of Hollywood sources scoops well, over the last yeah. couple of months. <laughs> uh, can I just add one thing to this, as we need to move on, obviously, but uh, Callum, if you keep talking about camper vans, there's a good chance that we'll be... Uh, doing this podcast from Sockton Prison next week. So I would just watch yourself. Okay. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I do. <laughs> I do apologise for the typing. I was uh, I was away from my my usual setup, and so I wasn't aware that my typing would be quite so <laughs> ridiculous. Do you know it's like father, like son. I remember my dad used to work exclusively from home, and his office was above the living room. And when he typed, the big light in the middle of the living room floor would shake um, because <laughs> he was hammering the keyboard uh, so loudly. So apologies for that. Thanks for coming back. Um, there will be no typing from me at all on this week's episode. So if there's any typing, you can look elsewhere. Uh, thanks for all your tweets on that. Thanks for being with us on Hollywood Sources as well. We love having you there. Uh, follow and subscribe. Make sure you're there every single week. Uh, if somebody else types in weeks to come, then you will hear that first if you've subscribed and followed. We've got lots to talk about today. We want to use today, actually, to really dive into quite a few different issues that have popped up in the last few days uh, and get some analysis from Jeff and Andy. Plus, we've got a couple of your questions from Twitter and on our email as well. So if you'd like to get in touch anytime, find us on Twitter or you can email hello at hollywoodsources.com. Uh, right, let's get straight to it because leading the news today as we record on Wednesday the 24th is a new poll which suggests basically uh, that the SNP is going to face some real electoral difficulty uh, which feeds the narrative that we've been seeing b- picking up pace over the last couple of months. Let me read you this from the Times today. Scottish Labour is predicted to take 23 Westminster seats from the SNP with Hamza Yusuf's party set for its worst general election performance in almost a decade. Uh, it's If the forecast is accurate, then Labour's on course for its best result in Scotland for more than 15 years. The SNP would drop to 27 MPs compared with the 48 they returned in 2019. And the final sentence I'll read from this, Mary Black, the SNP's deputy Westminster leader, would be one of the casualties. Uh, Jeff, let's come to you first on this then. Uh, is this good news for Labour, bad news for the SNP? How should we be spinning this? Yeah, both of the above, uh, I would have thought. Um, all the caveats apply in terms of a poll. It is simply a poll as if there was a general election tomorrow. Nonetheless, this should be a real uh, warning shot to the SNP. And I actually think it's a little bit worse than that. I mean, I, I, as you know, I, I call in regularly from the northeast of Scotland, and I noticed that this poll has uh, the SNP picking up Aberdeenshire West and Murray from the Tories. I don't think that's particularly likely as things stand. Aberdeenshire West is, of course, the home of Balmoral, 
they had uh, my uh, business partner who joined us a couple of weeks ago uh, on the poll, uh, Fergus Much is their candidate, and he's an excellent candidate, an excellent campaigner, and he actually bucked the trend in recent elections. I just don't see it happening or materialising at the SNP. As again, as things stand, Murray, for similar reasons, but also we've got the, the highly protected marine areas. Can that issue be resolved? That'll be a huge issue up there. It's a coastal community. Uh, it's currently Tory. Would it change? I think it's a stretch, if I'm being honest with you. And the reason I think that those two seats are important, because if you were to give them to uh, uh, the Conservatives, um, that would uh, reduce the SNP's lead, which is three seats in this poll, to simply one. Uh, and I think in terms of the optics, uh, the ability for Hamza Youssef and Stephen Flynn to say, but we won the election is really important. It's getting very nip and tuck on these figures, if you accept my analysis on those two seats and it just takes one one other seat to fall the other way and Labour are winning the election and, and that's important because it can Hamza Youssef survive losing a general election that's the big question uh, and perhaps Andy will be able to answer it for me <laughs> <laughs> well thanks for setting me up on that one um I think that uh, I this is all for me a bit of a stepping stone. We've got three years ahead of us because the next Scottish election at Holyrood is three years this month and the general election comes probably right in the middle of that in 18 months' time. If it gets to... I, I, I have never been of the view, let me say at the start, I've never been of the view that Hamza Youssef will go after this general election. Um, I've always thought he'll be the SNP leader going into the Scottish election of 2026, partly because I've never quite thought to this point that Labour will actually win the general election in Scotland. I, I, mean, I think it's clear that they will do better at this point, but I've never thought that they'll actually win. If they do win, as Jeff articulates, if Labour actually get more seats than the SNP in Scotland, then I think that could be a problem for Hamza Youssef. But at that point, I guess we're into hypothetical upon hypothetical upon, upon hypothetical. Um, I think the important thing here is trends, um, and this is the trend, clearly. Um, for the SNP and for Labour, what they have to do is learn the right lessons from a poll like this. This is the most stark of the polls that have come out, but it is the same trend as the other polls that have been coming out over the last few weeks. And I think they've got to learn the right lessons. Labour's lesson is that they have dealt with, and I've categorised before, soft unionists and soft mm. nationalists. Labour have got soft unionists back. They've been voting Tory because they thought the Tories were the best bet for keeping the union together and stopping India F2. They've switched back to Labour because they think that Keir Starmer is going to be in Downing Street, so he's the guy who's going to protect the union from there. And they think that India F2 is dead because of the Supreme Court. So they've gone away from the Tories, they're back to core vote, and they've gone to Labour. So Labour have got that. What Labour are getting a bit of, and we explored this with John Curtis, for those who didn't hear that podcast, is they're starting to get yes voters voting Labour. Not in huge numbers, but in reasonable numbers, yes, voters are going to Labour. Now, I think what Labour can't afford to do is stand still. If they want to get more of those soft nationalists back, they've got to go towards them with a better and clearer offer on what devolution is and what the union means. So they've got to, again, they've got to learn the right lessons. The SNP is in a trickier situation because the big question the SNP have to ask themselves, and they're not always great at doing this, to be honest, they're not always the most reflective party and they're not always able to um, to conceptually understand that they might have made mistakes. And I think what they've got to do is say to themselves, why is our support going down? Because you could ask two or three different people in the SNP and you might get seven or eight different answers to that. 
at this point, and they have to understand why they are losing support and deal with those issues that are making them lose support. Mm. And I'm not sure they'll come up with the same answer as some of the rest of us would come up with. Jeff, just with yeah. the, with all of that, I just want to ask as well, though, other than perception and momentum and all of these things and narrative, why should the SNP care about losing seats at Westminster? Because it is the natural lead-in to the Holyrood elections there after, first and foremost. And do you want to come into that election contest on the back of... Um, uh, holding on to a victory, a narrow victory, which in perception terms in politics is very important, or do you want to go in on a, a, a fairly landslide against you? Uh, that's significant. But but also, this is the first test of both Hamza Yusuf and Stephen Flynn, the, the, the SNP Westminster leader. It is uh, very, very important in, in that respect. Momentum in politics is everything. And if uh, at the ballot box you're losing momentum, it's very hard to reverse that trend. Now, if I may return to, to something Andy touched on there in terms of how the parties approach this, I can tell you from my time uh, in government uh, leading up to the 2011 election particularly, people forget this, but the Labour Party were still in a handsome lead uh, even in February of 2011. And, and for uh, the benefit of uh, listeners, that was the election that the SNP had returned a majority a few months later. So these things can be reversed. Um, it takes a hell of a lot of effort. But first and foremost, I think as Andy's alluded to, what we'd have done back then is get everyone in a room, your principal politicians at both Holyrood and Westminster, your key strategists, your key campaign team, get them in a room and say, guys, let's take this as red. There's a trend here emerging in all the polls, but let's take this as red. What are we going to do to try and reverse it? Now, I, I think there are many answers to, to this question. And, and unfortunately, Hums has found himself with the mother of all hospital passes, owing to the police investigations, of course, the public policy uh, realm as it is just now that he's been handed from uh, his predecessor. But we've touched on previous podcasts, and I think first and foremost, it's him identifying with conviction the issues that he wants to be known for. On too many of the issues just now, it's very much on the one hand this, on the other that. Well, we'll let the consultation take place and we'll see uh, where it gets to. We might touch on some of these issues shortly. Enough of that. I, you know, I am the First Minister of Scotland. This is why I wanted the job. This is what I'm going to do. And you might lose some friends on the way, but I tell you, voters respect conviction more than uh, humming and hawing. And I just feel that that lack of identity from the SNP is really costing them uh, with... Uh, public attitudes just now. So that has to be a major priority. Do you uh, know the other thing as well is that, and, and Jeff has spoken about this a lot before, and I, I, you know, it's very, it, should be, it should be very instructive for those who are at the top of government at the moment to listen to Jeff, who's been there and done it before. Because um, it is pretty obvious to me that if you look at how SNP support trends, it is pretty heavily related to their performance as a devolved government. When they are doing well, when they are running the country well, they do well in the polls. Now, that might seem like an incredibly obvious statement, but I'm actually not entirely convinced that internally they make that link as directly as I've just made it. People now know that all is not well in the NHS and that all is not well in schools and that the economy is not growing in the way that we might want it to grow out of this cost of living crisis and we can you know we can debate how true all these things are but what is the case is that people now are questioning the competence 
of the SNP government. And that's a relatively new concept. It's not, you know, under um, Nicola Sturgeon and at least the early part of Nicola Sturgeon pre-2021 and under Alex Salmon, there wasn't a huge question mark over the competence of the government. Maybe priorities, maybe direction, yes. But there wasn't much of a question mark over the actual competence of the people running the government. And that is now in question. Now, in a lot of cases, and Jeff and I know a lot of these people who are running the Scottish government, and they're very accomplished people who can do a good job, but the fact is that their competence is being questioned, sometimes unfairly, but it is being questioned at the moment, and that has to have a direct impact on their poll ratings. A couple of other notes on this poll, just to mention the Lib Dems would hold their current four seats under the modelling by YouGov. And also just this as well, as we as you you know, as we kind of progress towards the election, YouGov says that Scotland has one of the highest concentrations of marginal seats in the UK. Twenty-two of the fifty-nine projected seats in the model have winning margins of less than 5%. Um, and so that highlights, I suppose, the importance, the significance of this poll, but also Scotland in the general election. Um, this all brings me to a question we had from Mada on Twitter, uh, who says, what will the campaign strategies and key messages be for the main parties? And goes on to say, how will Scottish Labour and Scottish Conservative plans differ from UK-wide parties, um, Andy. Let's start with you. This is a you know this is always the question, isn't it? Is how do Scottish parties campaign differently from the kind of UK-wide uh, parties, and, and how different those strategies should be? I think it will differ between the Tories and Labour. I think the Labour campaign will aim to be pretty unified, um, and you know the. Basically, the Labour campaign north and south of the border is vote for us to get rid of the Tories. I mean, that's, you know, that's a, a relatively simple from that point of view. Keir Starmer has not hugely set out. Um, I mean, he's, to be fair, he is starting to. But there's not an enormous vision for exactly what Labour's Britain will look like, other than the fact that it won't have Tories running it. Um, and that that's pretty much the yeah. uh, the main aspect of the Labour campaign. And, and, and as Sarwar in Scotland will just endorse that, basically, and run his own version of the same campaign. The subtle difference in Scotland being you don't have to vote SNP to get rid of Tories. This is how you get rid of Tories. Um, and I think that that is what he will do. Scottish Tory campaign is hard. They have a blank sheet of paper. Um, they, I think, have a sense that they can still try to run the same campaign that they've run in the past, which is vote for us to stop Indira F2. Mm. Now, that is the campaign they've been running since 2015, basically. Um, and it has worked very well, but it's worked because those soft unionists I mentioned before have been voting for them and they're not going to vote for them anymore. This, ironically, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, the highest court of the union has actually killed the Scottish Tories campaign strategy of vote for us to stop Indira F2 because Indira F2 has already been stopped um, and it's not going to be a Tory in Downing Street to stop it anyway. So that campaign strategy is dead as a dodo and they are going to, I think they're going to try it a little bit um, but they're going to have to come up with something else. You can see them starting to trial the whole, uh, you know, um, Hamza Yusuf uh, has Keir Starmer in his pocket stuff like they did many years ago with Ed Miliband and Alex Salmond. I don't think it washes, really, to be honest. Keir Starmer's answered the question a million different ways. He's not interested in a deal with the SNP. Mm. He doesn't need to do a deal with the SNP. He'll look to Ed Davey first. And if he doesn't, if he, you know, even if that is not enough, he doesn't need to do a deal with... Uh, the SNP to be able to form a government anyway. So I think the Tories' strategy is a real problem for them. Um, what I would say, though, about the Tories, before um, we get thoughts from Jeff on it, um, I don't think their strategy matters all that much. 
because they are, as Jeff said, Jeff questions whether or not the SNP will win those two seats in the North East back from the Tories. I agree. I think the Tories are odds on to hold on to the six seats they've got. Uh, they'll just do it on a significantly smaller vote share. Yeah. I just want to uh, read you this tweet from Anna Sarwards before we bring Jeff in, who says this morning, the only poll that matters is polling day, of course, uh, but it is clear that across Scotland, people are sick of the Tory and SNP status quo. So let's boot the Tories out of Downing Street and change Scotland together with a Scotland flag emoji. Yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> that's not particularly surprising. That's been a, 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 a quite a, a long running mantra from, from Anna's. And, and listen, if I was in his position, that's exactly what I'd be saying as well at this stage. I just want to add two bits of nuance to what Andy was saying. I don't want to repeat a lot of what he was saying. Um, I think that the Tory strategy going into the election um, at UK level will be, as I've said before, fundamentally based on the economy. If the economy is in better shape, that's, that, you know, that gives them the best chance or probably only chance of scraping a victory akin to uh, John Major in 1990. Uh, two, we've seen this morning that inflation rates have come down. They're still high. I think it's 8.7%. That's not, that's not going to cut it. If, it. if it continues to trend in that direction, the cost of living reduces and there's more growth in the economy, then that might give them a platform. And I suspect in, in Scotland, given what Andy said about not having the same um, uh, ability to go on no to Indiref, uh, two, that uh, we'd, we'd suspect that the, 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 the Conservatives would, would, you know, ape that messaging on the economy if it is indeed improved. For Labour, I've said before as well, I think there is nuance in Scotland. I think, yes, kick out the Tories at the UK level. that I'll be aped by Anna Sarwar and his Scottish colleagues. But also, I do think it's important that they crystallise what they will implement in Scotland in terms of potentially further devolution or strengthening Holyrood. I do think that's going to be a, a core component, and I think Anna said as much in his podcast uh, with us. What do the SMB, SNP do to counter that? I think uh, I still think that if Brexit, again, it links back to the economy, if it's still demonstrably uh, adversely impact, impacting our uh, economy, they will try and go on uh, Brexit because they think that they can expose uh, Labour's perceived lack of intent to uh, modify uh, Brexit. That might be a way through. And then try and create this relevance piece that Stephen Flynn's been trying to say, you're going to rely on our votes to get through your legislative agenda. I, I slightly disagree with Andy and have done before that if that happens, I, I do think the SNP could play a kingmaker argument. Although on the figures that we've seen today, that's becoming less and less likely. I think just uh, Jeff and I have both mentioned Labour and their approach to the union um, and the need to offer some sort of enhanced devolution settlement. Um, as I think Jeff and I both agree on the strategy behind that being important for Labour. For what it's worth, I don't think they're going to. I don't think they will. Mm. Um, Labour suffer from a mild case of what the Tories have, which is uh, an instinctive unwillingness to decentralise. So it runs right through the Tory DNA that um, decentralisation is defeat, basically. They think that any devolution that you give is a victory for the SNP and a loss for them. They cannot see it strategically at all. Labour are better on that issue, but they're by no means groundbreaking on it. They still have an automatic reticence to look at... Uh, the devolution settlement and to look at how it might work better. And it does hold them back and it will continue to hold them back. But I, I, I would I would just highlight that although uh, I think it's a good idea 
uh, and although Jeff thinks it's a good idea for them to do it and it will win them a lot of votes from the SNP, I don't think they will. I, I find that very interesting because if you're looking at this poll and you're Keir Starmer and you're looking at this 23-seat advance in Scotland, and we know from previous polling, as John Curtis has told us, that there's those soft nationalists going to the Labour uh, camp to get rid of the Tories. What do, you, what do you need to do to keep them there uh, for the next 18 months? It would seem good sense to try and make some sort of uh, offer on strengthening Holyrood, and that might get you over the line. So uh, you might be right, Andy, but I think it would be a strategic error for them not to do it. Uh, thank you very much for your question. And by the way, lots of today is um, based around questions that you've sent us um, for us to consider in the uh, sort of current context of all that's going on. Uh, so do tweet us or email anytime hello at hollywoodsources.com. More of your questions to come. And in a moment, we'll try to work out what's going on with the deposit return scheme. So you can wish us luck on that one. Do stay with us. We're right back after this. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Now we know how much you love Hollywood sources and we are so grateful that you are there and we are so grateful to have support from our favourite hotel group, The Resident with hotels in London and Liverpool. Now, don't just take our word for how good and supportive and wonderful they are. Take this review from Louisa just a couple of months ago. She stayed in Covent Garden in London and said, Great location. Room was so comfortable and clean. Shower was the best we had. Hmm. During our month in Europe. Close to shopping and restaurants and multiple tube stations, Covent Garden is the perfect area to stay. And here's East Coast Will, who stayed at the resident earlier this year. Don't hesitate to book your stay here, especially if you're planning to attend theatre events. It's a quiet, restful oasis in a very busy city. We're excited to return. So if you're heading to London anytime soon, for politics or otherwise, and you're listening to Hollywood sources on the way, and why wouldn't you, stay at The Resident for the full London experience. To book your stay, click residenthotels.com. We're going on to talk about the deposit return scheme, everyone's favourite. Uh, let me read you this from Holyrood magazine. The troubled deposit return scheme is, quote, all systems go and the Scottish government will, quote, carry on with the launch, says Lorna Slater, who, of course, is the minister in charge of the plan and has rejected calls to scrap it and start again. Um, there are concerns that it could fall apart by the end of this month unless the UK government agrees to lift post-Brexit domestic trade rules. Uh, but here comes Lorna Slater saying, actually, it's all systems go, Jeff. Uh, do, you under do you know what's going on with the deposit return scheme? I'm not, I'm not convinced I do anymore. It's a great question, and, and the answer is no, I don't. And if I don't, <laughs> there's a good chance that most voters don't exactly. either. Look, all I'm hearing about this, put, I'm trying to put myself 
in a you know an average punter's mindset that doesn't engage in politics like us geeks do. We've heard in the last few days that uh, the Scottish government is expecting the UK government to pay for compensation on the DRS scheme um, should it not go uh, ahead. They, we then hear that it might be delayed or might not go ahead at all. That was Lorna Slater herself at a conference indicating that. And then we hear it's all systems go. I have no idea genuinely uh, what the state of play with this, with this policy. And it goes back to that fundamental message discipline. You go, you, it, it, it's so frustrating to watch from a purely political strategist point of view. You should go back to the drawing board and say, right, where are we trying to get to? This is our strategy to get to that destination. And you have your messaging in and behind that to support that position. We're going uh, three positions in as, as many days is not going to sell it and cut it with the electorate. And this is a perfect example of what Andy was talking earlier about the competence or otherwise of the current Scottish government. They need to get the house in order. Mm. Andy, what is the strategy here? And just with that in mind, I'll ask Richard's question. Uh, Richard tweeted us, why has the First Minister not yet ditched the Greens and kicked them out of the government given their performance and if slash when he might do so? Um, I suppose if he's, if he's stuck with them this long, does he just does he stick with them from here on out? Um, I find it quite difficult to see any kind of roadmap to Hamza Yusuf making a proactive decision to lose the Greens from his government. I, I, I don't see where or when. I mean, the obvious question would be, OK, what if he does really badly in the general election and you can start to blame some of those uh, problems on, on some of the Green policies? But I, I don't see it getting to the point where the SNP part of that cabinet sits around the table and says, I think we need to get rid of the Greens. And the reason I say that is because... Um, and Look, let's try and be as balanced as we can be here. When there were reasons for doing this Green Deal, they were mainly revolved around what was going on inside the Parliament building. I think people need to understand why this deal was done. The, the end of the last Parliament was a very toxic atmosphere. Um, uh, the, in, the Hollywood inquiry into the Alex Salmond situation really took its toll on relationships inside that building. And the air of cooperation, which existed to quite a large degree in the past, was pretty much obliterated by that situation. And there was a real paranoia um, at the top of the SNP. Uh, John Swinney almost lost his job. He almost, got, uh, he almost lost a motion of confidence. There were lots of other motions of confidence. The SNP were beginning to lose votes. They were worried they might lose budgets. Um, and when they didn't get their majority, when Jackie Bailey won Dumbarton and it was clear the SNP were not going to get a majority in the last election, um, I think they panicked, to be honest. And I think they said to themselves, at all costs, we have to have stability in the next parliament. We can't have this anymore. And so, and, and they gave a lot away in order to get that stability by going into this agreement with the Greens. The Greens, as I've said before, again, in the interest of being as fair as possible, the Greens have played a blinder here. They have got two ministers and two special advisers, and they have got control over large, well, they've got control over large swathes of policy area. They've also got a very heavy influence over other areas of policy as well. Um, and they are hugely influential in government. Um, so there were reasons why it was done. One of the reasons why it was done, of course, was to get a pro-independence majority in the parliament because they wanted to exert influence at Westminster. That is now no longer valid. 
Um, and there is also decreasing evidence that you need a united front to keep the independence vote together. We know from John Curtis uh, the other week and from the poll that Jess True North did that the independence uh, support is strong, even though the SNP support is weakening. So SNP, so independent supporters are sophisticated enough to continue to support independence while giving their votes to a variety of different parties. So the fracturing of that SNP Green coalition would actually probably not do much to the independence vote at all. So this gets us back to the original question. Why don't they just ditch it? Mm. Um, and I think this comes back to a comment I made earlier on that, um, you know, we know a lot of these people who run government. We've got a lot of respect for these people. I work with them all the time and they are intelligent and thoughtful and strategic people. But if there was one criticism I would make of those who've been running government over the last seven or eight years, they are not particularly good at self-reflection. They are not particularly good at accepting that they may have got things wrong. And I think they will find it quite emotionally difficult to look at themselves in the mirror and say, we screwed up we shouldn't have done this and we need to get out of it. They tend to double down rather than recoil. Um, and I think that will make it very difficult for Hamza Yusuf or any of his allies. And remember, the cabinet is full of his allies. Yeah. They're not, the cabinet doesn't have critics of this deal in it at all. It is full of people who endorse the deal and support the deal and support Hamza Yusuf. And I, I look around that cabinet table and I think, Who's going to be the one to stand up and say, guys, we've got this wrong and we need to reverse out of it? And I don't, I, I can't see anybody doing it. Yeah. Jeff, if I can then take that and just rephrase the question slightly, what would Hamza Yusuf lose if he binged the Greens out of government? What, what would be lost? Well, I, I, Andy's given a very good summary of, of the rationale behind uh, the deal in the first place. And in, in essence, that is what you would lose. But I just take a different view. I just take a different view here. I mean, had the SNP been uh, uh, high sailing in the polls with, with commanding leads, then yeah, keep things as is. But you play the ball where it lies in politics. And they're not. They are not uh, uh, with that huge lead anymore. It's a very marginal lead, if that, just now. And they've got to look at the reasons for that. I would wager that you know part of the reason uh, for that decline in support is some of the controversies around the Green-supported uh, policies. Now, the question was that was posed by our listener was, you know, uh, you know, why he won't mm. uh, get rid of the Greens. I'm not necessarily arguing that he has to get rid of them, but as I've said before in this podcast, you've got to show a bit of teeth. You've got to, and you've got, you've got to get the Greens around the table. This is politics, guys. You say, look, okay, this is having an adverse impact on the SNP support. That will, in turn, impact my ability to lead this party going forward. So we need to have some compromise. So we are going to, for example, uh, completely reform our approach in DRS. We aren't going to proceed with the highly protected marine areas. Forget the consultations. Get out and say it now. There's nothing stopping you doing that. Because the alternative is, guys, that we do get to a period post-election where the SNP has lost a lot of seats and there's a lot of self-reflection, which might be too late, and then uh, that uh, marks the departure from the green arrangement. Far better to be proactive and to be seen as leading the agenda as opposed to the agenda leading mm. you. And I think they have to look, as Andy rightly points out, within themselves and say, are we getting this fundamentally right? I think the answer is a resounding no just now. 
You mentioned consultations there. We have had a really fascinating email uh, that we want to discuss as well today. It's been kept anonymous for obvious reasons, uh, but here you go. And by the way, pay attention to this first bit because it's a surefire way of getting your email read out. Uh, this person says, I'm a long-time listener, but first-time emailer. I love the podcast. It makes my hour-long commute to work on a Thursday fly by. Thank you, Callum, Jeff and Andy, for making each episode so informative, interesting and entertaining. And uh, <laughs> sadly, that's not the end of the email. But always say, if you include praise in your message, we'll read it out. That's a, just a rule. Uh, anyway, the email goes on. I've been working closely with Scottish government officials as part of the programme for government review of purpose-built student accommodation. And my observation would be not that consultation doesn't happen, it does, but that it is a box-ticking in approach. I found it to be A, inherently complex with long-winded questions which don't mean anything, and B, very often the responses aren't listened to. The organisation I represent, along with others in the sector, has been flagging issues and potential solutions for months, but we are not being listened to. Instead, officials and maybe ministers seem too keen to do their own thing and to legislate for every minute detail rather than seek to adopt solutions which, dare I say it, have already been proven to work elsewhere, particularly south of the border. There seems to be a one-track desire to just find ways to do things differently in Scotland and to try to please particular cohorts of people without actually properly understanding the situation and the likely outcome and, perhaps unintended, consequences of the proposed recommendations. We need a complete reset. Let's hope the change elections on the horizon help facilitate that, says this person. You mentioned consultations there, Jeff. It has come up on the podcast even last week, I think. We were mentioning consultations and, and sort of speaking to those in the know and those that will be affected. What do you make, first of all, of this email from, from, our, from this listener? Utterly fascinating. And, you know, I'm very grateful, actually, yeah. for taking the time to write to us because it's very informative. Um, you know, that phrase, box-ticking exercise, suggests to me that, you know, ministers are, uh, we know what we want to do, uh, we'll just do the consultation anyway, and then it'll try and support our um, ambitions, as opposed to actually engaging in a meaningful consultation to understand what is the, the policy gap we're trying to fill, and ultimately, as any policy should uh, be, how does this make things better for those most impacted by that policy? And perhaps that has been overlooked. So that is so revealing. Can I just give a, a, an example of this? Um, and perhaps Andy's in a similar position. For a number of my clients uh, recently filled out the energy uh, draft energy consultation uh, from the Scottish Government. There's some really good elements in it. I want to say that. And there's some really interesting. But there was a lot of questions on an area uh, which is completely reserved to Westminster. And this was... Um, uh, alluding to kind of oil and gas exploration, but also climate compatibility checkpoints. I think there was almost seven questions or eight questions on that in a 40-question uh, 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 consultation. They have no regulatory authority for that. They have no government authority for that. So I, all while I'm looking at this consultation going, but how is this going to impact devolved governance going forward? Because as things stand, there isn't. Uh, the likelihood of independence on the rise. And so why are we uh, answering these questions? Far better to concentrate on the things that they do have power uh, for. So I do wonder um, if there is an element of what we've been talking about so far in this podcast, getting back to brass tacks. 
What have we got control over? What can we actually influence? And let's focus on that through meaningful consultation to try and have positive outcomes for those most impacted by such a policy direction and listen to the concerns. So we're not in a position of responding to concerns after the consultation has launched. Um, we're in a position of trying to anticipate those concerns and seeking to address them. That is a mark of good governance. But again, thank you very much mm. to whoever that was that wrote in, because it's really revealing. Yeah. And perhaps very worrying, actually, as well. Yeah. And it's, and it's widespread. I mean, that's the, you know, I, I you know, we have clients across lots and lots of sectors. So we do uh, read lots of consultations and do lots of responses all the time. Uh, and, the you know, the reality is the quality of Scottish government consultation now is extremely poor. Um, and um, one of the interesting things about the email, which I've been reflecting on for a while, is I actually think that the problem lies in the sort of top layer of the civil service um, and maybe underneath that as well. I think there's an issue with bandwidth in the civil service um, and I think there's an issue uh, with seniority uh, and institutional knowledge in the civil service as well. There are quite a lot of cases where Scottish government ministers will want something done and it simply doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, ultimately the buck stops with elected politicians. Um, but I do think there's a problem with the quality of what sits underneath them to produce good consultations. Far too many, we mentioned the box ticking exercise, mm. far too many of these consultations are effectively written with an answer at the, you know, they, they, they know the answer and then they work out the questions that are going to fit that uh, and that come before. They, you know, the answer is predetermined. There are certain things that they want to do um, and the consultation is just designed yeah. to fit with that predetermined decision about what's happening. And the trouble is, it's not very well disguised. So you can read consultations and you look at it and you say, sorry, are these questions or are these statements that you're just waiting for us and that you're asking four different versions in a tick box of, of how we can agree with the statement that you've just made? So consultations have changed a lot over the last few years, actually. There was a time when they genuinely were much more open um, and, they, and you would feel like you could reply to them and genuinely have a chance of being listened to these days consultations do unfortunately uh, and the, the the listener is quite correct consultations unfortunately look much more like box ticking exercises these days um predetermined answers uh, and questions which fit the answer it's really fascinating thank you for your email and uh, do keep in touch um you as well all of you can keep in touch um if you need anonymity if you're working in government or whatever then that is absolutely no problem at all your insight is always welcome the email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com uh, thanks for your messages thanks for your questions today as well we'll return to um more of your questions as, as we progress through this uh, so if you've got questions in the weeks to come then feel free to send them to us uh, just want to finish with a couple of concluding thoughts on the snp's independence convention uh, which is on the way um where's it jeff what's the point what's the point in the independence convention <laughs> well uh, let's let's kind of separate what's happened to the rationale behind independence convention because i actually think a convention is long overdue um the question i think at, at, at stake here is whether that convention should only include the snp uh, or whether it should bring in other parties. Now, I'm going to you know, defend the SNP position here as long as uh, the following ca caveats are adhered to. If 
this is about getting the SNP into a room and saying, this is what we are going after, guys. This is our strategy. We agree it here democratically. And then they seek to engage other parties and other interest groups that are supportive of independence thereafter, then I can see merit in it. Because I think we all agree. We've seen contradictory arguments on social media and all the rest of it about what the independence strategy should be from solely SNP parliamentarians, let alone wider uh, movements. So I think there is merit in doing that. But there is so important that it does seek to engage the wider uh, yes uh, movement at the appropriate time. Because I, I reflect on what happened in 2014, and there was a huge umbrella of movements in favour of independence, but not everyone agreed on individual policy positions being put forward by the SNP government. That's fine. Let's agree that. I think the importance here is to agree what is that overarching purpose, ambition, vision that we can all get behind if you're of an independence persuasion, and then accept within that that there's going to be differing points of view on specific legislation, policies, or um, areas of interest. So I can see the purpose of doing this, uh, and I hope that it is worthwhile and valuable. But equally, I think the context of doing this in advance of the general election um, is also very important, because if, and we were led to believe that the de facto referendum is now not off the table and it's back on the table, we'll, we'll wait to see what happens at this uh, convention. But if they were to fight this as a de facto uh, referendum, they wouldn't win 50% of the votes as the polls stand. Mm. And then what does that do for independence and indeed the Holyrood elections thereafter? Uh, now, I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. I, I've never been in favour of the de facto policy. But for goodness sake, there needs to be consistency of approach. So, yes, I do think there's merit in this yeah. convention. And I do think it, there is a point to it, to answer your question, Cal. Do you know, I was, um, I was on Scotland Tonight on STV on Monday night. And we uh, were sitting, waiting to go on. And I was listening to the interview with Jamie Hepburn. Jamie's a very competent minister, been a minister for a while, um, good guy, smart guy, thinks about things. And I felt quite sorry for him, actually, because it's a really difficult question to answer. And I couldn't help but think, as I was sitting there listening to him, that a dose of honesty would actually do everybody on all sides an awful lot of good. Um, independence is not close. It's just not. And... Um, it is incredible how many sensible people who, on any other issue, you would think would be reasonable and sensible, will still come to you and outline some harebrained scheme for how independence can be delivered in the next three years. And you look at them and you think, what have you been drinking? I mean, this is not happening anytime remotely soon because, um, you know, the Supreme Court's decision combined with um, problems in polling mean that this is not on the table. If you want independence, you need support not to be floating between 45 and 50%. You need support to be floating between 55 and 60% consistently for quite a long period of time. And it is absolutely nowhere near. And I actually think it would do all sides a lot of good for that to be made clear because um, it would allow the SNP a bit of breathing space 
to be more reflective and to do the things on policy that they need to do to actually run the country better without the fear of the impact on independent support of doing that. I think that's a really important thing for this SNP government to be able to do, to govern without worrying about yes, no polling, because I think they do. I think that is an important thing to do. It would also give unionist parties a bit of space as well to be much more reasonable and more collaborative with each other, but also with the government on things that can take Scotland forward. If we all understood and accepted that at least for the for a while this was off the table, I think it would help. And it would help the independence movement put together a strategy, a longer term sensible strategy to say, right, if we want independence, we're going to have to think again a little bit and think longer term about how we get it. And we have to accept the fact it's not going to happen in the next three years. Surely you're making the case, therefore, for such a convention. so that Oh, I don't mind the convention aired. taking place. I yeah. think it's the premise on which it takes place, because all these conventions take place on the premise of, right, how do we get independence in the next three years? But, What's the strategy for that now? And it's not there. But there hasn't been a convention involving the SNP on the issue of independence for many years. So I think it is long overdue that they air these uh, views, some of which you rightly highlight, and come up with an agreed position. Whatever that position is, I think my point is more that there's such uh, contradictions within the SNP itself, before you bring in the wider yes movement, uh, that there needs to be some sort of agreed position from the principal vehicle for independence, which is the SNP, before you can move forward. And that will perhaps allow you then to do what you're saying and then focus on day-to-day -day policy uh, um, uh, aspirations. Uh, but it has to, there has to be some sort of agreement. I, I am actually... It's, it's so frustrating. Look, I believe in Scottish independence. Uh, there's a big surprise and exclusive <laughs> for you. Um, but... but what is so frustrating is seeing, and I won't name names, but senior elected parliamentarians across the SNP and indeed other uh, parties, including the Alpine, you know, tearing each other apart on every minuscule part detail. Now, I, I, I would, if I was the unionists, I'd be looking there going, rubbing my hands going, you beauty, this lot are tearing each other apart. There has to be an agreed approach, framework, message going forward. Uh, else... Uh, independence certainly will be lost for the long term if you don't have that in place. I wonder how they'll corral. I do understand. All of I mean, that. part part of the frustration is understandable because, in my view, there is a mandate for a referendum. Uh, it was there in 2021. Um, the SNP yep, had a very absolutely. clear election manifesto: vote for us, and you're voting for a second independence referendum. The Greens did the same, and they are in government with a clear majority. Now, that is a mandate. In my view, that is democracy. And there should have been, there should be a second independence referendum. But there's not, because the UK government has the constitutional ability to say no. And they have. Now, I don't think that's good for the union in the long term, that belligerence. But the yes side have to accept things as they are. Not accept, not not as they want them to be, and as they are, there is no route to a referendum. It doesn't exist, and they have to adapt their thinking to that reality rather than just whining all the time, which is, I think, what they're in danger of doing. 
Yeah, I, I think we're saying the same thing, Randy. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, really interesting. Your thoughts then on the Independence Convention. If you'd like to have your say, please email hello at hollywoodsources.com. We always love to hear from you on that or indeed anything else that you want us to talk about or that you want to agree or disagree on. Uh, Andy and Jeff, thank you very much. Thanks both. Um, you'll note there was no typing during that because I've got my mute button back. So all good, all good. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, this is Hollywood Sources. We drop into your podcast feed every single week as long as you are following and or subscribed. Depends which app you're using, but the button's very obvious. So go ahead and press it and we'll talk to you again next Wednesday.